Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, innovators, and some people with just fascinating stories. Today, our guest is Dr. Jeffrey DeBelco, professor at the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Service at Ohio University. He also is a senior advisor in the Environmental Change and Security Program at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. We're talking about the Fifth National Climate Assessment. Dr. DeBelco was one of the authors of the international chapter. Jeff, the Fifth National Climate Assessment, uh, that sounds like a formal title, it's out, came out earlier in November. First of all, tell us what that is and how it was mandated. The National Climate Assessment was um, mandated initially in the Global Change Research Act of 1990, and there have been five of them. Um, the, the fifth coming out this year, starting the first in 2000. It's a, uh, in some ways, all of government look at um, climate science and climate action, um, but also uh, notably uh, external experts to the government as well. So there were 500 authors over 32 chapters looking um, regionally uh, within the United States, topically within the United States, and different dimensions of, of climate change. And also, I should say, the chapter that I was part of internationally, what international impacts and actions mean for the United States. And so through multiple rounds of 14 government agency reviews, multiple rounds of public comment and input, a review from the National Academy of Science, this is a, um, an effort multi-year effort to really give us an in-depth and up-to-date assessment of what the science um, indicates is occurring, is likely to occur, and also what um, the actions are and the responses are and what um, those mean for um, responding to those impacts. Some of the things I've read about it said that, uh, of course, it was congressionally mandated, mm -hmm. uh, but that it provides a scientific foundation to support informed decision-making. Now, that seems aspirational to me, but uh, how important is that aspect of this? Uh, hugely important, in, in part because so many actors in the public and the private space um, require a um, 
an understanding of what the multiple dimensions of climate change mean in a variety of sectors. That's economic, that's political, that's social, that's uh, food security, uh, health. These are all areas where practitioners, not just ones that might have climate change in their job title or their office title, uh, but practitioners down at um, county and mayor levels, certainly at state levels, um, really need to understand what is um, currently the case and wh where we see things going so that they can have that input into practical decisions. So if you are in charge, for example, of local level water infrastructure, you would historically have just looked at what past hydrological data said. What is the rainfall? How much rain do we expect? What, what are the infrastructures, uh, uh, infrastructure that we build? What's it got to handle? Well, it turns out that um, the past in some respects is not necessarily going to be a good predictor of the future. So if you're making big multi-year um, multi-million dollar investments, you really have to have the best and most up-to-date information uh, to, to do that in a way that it, it meets the needs and has um, the lasting impact. And so making those systems more resilient in what will be a, a increasingly more variable and less certain um, uh, climate, that's critically important. I know you've said that uh, we know a lot about the impacts of climate change, but we know less about, as you put it, complex interactions uh, between environmental, economic, political, how all of those things connect. Is, is that what you're talking about? Absolutely. I think, for example, in our international chapter, we saw uh, that there is a lot of priority given now to building um, domestic economic um, infrastructure and supporting private sector efforts to um, deploy and develop renewable energy technologies, whether that's solar panel, wind power, uh, the electric vehicles. And that's been a priority of this administration. At the same time, those new technologies require um, mined minerals and metal inputs. It turns out that many of those um, are found overseas. And so the connections that we um, highlight in this report indicate that that is a consideration in a almost international foreign policy and geopolitical um, context, in part because so many of them come from China. So it factors into a larger geopolitical, geoeconomic relationship with China in competition in the economic space, um, uncertainty in the security space, and that um, in here in Ohio, where we are seeing growth in electric vehicle um, associated uh plants and battery technologies and big investments there, that that's a Ohio issue, that's an economic issue. But unless we understand some of these larger supply chain issues that have an international dimension, then we don't fully appreciate what those linkages are. One can look in the areas of health and uh, economics and um, food and agriculture. And so um, where there are similar uh, events and dynamics and connections that we have to fully, um, um, you know, we have to have the peripheral vision that allows us to understand how these things are connected. And we can't, we don't have the luxury of just focusing on what's in front of us. 
let me take you back uh, just a little bit to the last report, which was in 2018, came out in November 2018. Uh, then President Donald Trump uh, chose to release that report publicly uh, on Black Friday, which means it got almost no coverage uh, throughout the country, or if it did, nobody was paying attention to it. And he also made a comment uh, that was attributed to him that he didn't believe the the report. So, so that started that five years off probably on a bit of a, a negative uh, track. This report was uh, published earlier in November, and there's been a lot of publicity about it. How do those two things play into what will happen with the reports? You know, what happened with the 2018 report? And what do you anticipate will happen with the 2023 report, given the different launch sequences? Well, I, I think at the heart it is a a report that's issued by the administration that is in in office at the time, and so there are definitely um, variations among the priority and attention given to this issue over time. At the same time, I think uh, it is um, the report is playing multiple roles over time, and so the federal government and the attention that is and priority that is given to it really matters. And so I think with a, a, a White House launch, including the president announcing it, a whole series of webinars and outreach uh, activities, once the report's done, but I would also say what's new about this one is that there were uh, many more opportunities for public input along the way in terms of setting the agenda in terms of the issues and providing input and suggesting literature and, and research to review. Um, but I think over time, one of the things that makes me optimistic about the utility of this report, whether it gets a big um, uh, a big launch or not from the White House, is that it holds practical information for decision makers in the public and the private profit and private nonprofit sectors that is useful and goes specifically to problems in their inbox. Up and, and down the line. We're not yeah. talking just about Congress. We're talking about everybody. Well, absolutely. So, for example, um, one of the big challenges in wrapping our arms around, literally and figuratively, the issue of climate change is that it's often an international discussion where global average temperature change or parts per million of carbon dioxide are the indicators of, you know, are things good or things bad? Are they going in the right direction or not? But what's challenging historically has been downsizing that to a geography that's, um, that is smaller and more manageable and often where our decision makers are focusing. So whether that's a state or a region or a part of a state, this report provides those distinctions across multiple regional chapters of groupings of four or five or six states together uh, in similar geographies that provide much more 
nuanced and tailored and directly relevant information to the issues that those decision makers are, are, are facing. And so, such and that, as Midwest, Southeast, uh, Southwest, th- those types of uh, delineations. That's right. So, you know, certainly one key takeaway of the report is all parts of the United States are being directly impacted and require responses. Uh, yet, the way those impacts are playing out and those responses are different based on if are you a coastal community are you in a drought area are you in a fire uh area or are you i guess in the midwest in a um in a not in the uh locus of the fire area yet we're downwind and so what does this mean for air quality challenges uh in the midwest for fires that are quite remote from us right uh, in, in the western parts of canada and so in that respect it allows for some of those distinctions to move beyond the you know important indicators, global average temperature change and such, to really specifically understand what's this going to mean for water? What's this going to mean for agriculture? What's this going to mean for air quality in my particular geography so that I can take um, uh, responses that, yes, contribute to that larger uh, national and international effort, but are meaningful at, at scales that uh, connect to our local budgets, state budgets, but, individual let companies. Tr- let me try to translate this a bit and see if mm-hmm. I've got it got it correctly. Many times we see reports such as this that are mandated by Congress go to Congress and sit where nothing gets done. That's my opinion, not yours. Mm-hmm. What goes Congress where it just lays flat. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is this report, although mandated by Congress, breaks things down not only regionally, but down to even the local level where local uh, policymakers can uh, use what is available in this report to make reasoned decisions. Is that correct? It, it is. It is. And I, I should also say it it holds the weight of um, the 14 agencies uh, that make up the U.S. Global Change Research Program. So in that sense, you have input, buy-in, and responsibility from a, a wide variety of federal agencies and departments. And so this report is informing the actions across the government um, for the day-to-day decision-making and the priorities and the programs and the projects that all parts of the federal government are doing um, across you know, some of these chapter topic areas, right? Water, energy, land, forests, ecosystems, coast, oceans, agriculture, the built environment, transportation, human health, and such. Um, I should say also what's new, you asked what's new from 18 to, to, to 23. Right. Th- there's a clear um, theme and recognition uh, and, and practical examples on how this climate action has disproportionate impacts from a justice perspective and that um, a a number of our more vulnerable communities uh, bear a disproportionate burden from some of these impacts. And so that, I think, helps us inform how we need to have tailored 
responses to better serve those communities. Um, and, and those are range from uh, indigenous peoples to um, communities of color, low income populations, um, older adults, the disabled. It really, it runs across a, a number of lines of uh, areas where we need to have more tailored um tailored understanding of impacts and uh, certainly of the responses that we have to them. The report, if one reads the uh, overview, which uh, I would suggest uh, anybody read, the, the report is, is readily available to the public. Uh, the report, I think, simplifies things a bit Jeff, uh, and I'd like for you to comment on this. Uh, it really talks about three important terms that goes throughout the report. And this other sections of the report that I've read, I, I agree that they go throughout the report. The three terms are mitigation, adaption, and resilience. Mm -hmm. can, can you talk about how those terms relate to the report? Yeah, absolutely. So um, mitigation in the context of climate change means the efforts to reduce the uh, reduce the causes of the problem, so to speak. So this is where we see the efforts to uh, move away from a fossil fuel-based economy that is contributed by contributing carbon dioxide that is part of what's trapping the heat in the atmosphere at the greenhouse effect. Um, also methane um, associated with industrial activities in agriculture. And so to try to mitigate climate, we're trying to reduce the amount of emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. And so that's kind of uh, addressing root causes of the problem. How do we go about? How do we go about doing that? That's in the report. Right. How yeah. do we go so, about doing that? That's right. So that's everything from um, transitioning fundamentally for how we generate energy to move around in our buildings, in our building materials. So the the food we eat um, uh, has certainly different profiles and and, and such. Um, so kind of very dependent on consumption levels and uh, you know kind of what's what's powering the heat in your home or in your office building or your mode of transportation. Um, adaptation is a recognition that um, while that mitigation, reducing the core causes of the problem uh, goes on, there is going to be change that's already baked into the system because of past uh, emissions. Right, so this really becomes uh, an issue at the start of the industrial revolution. Right, so this, when we start burning large amounts of fossil fuel, and so that means that there are changes that are currently happening and will happen based on concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So it means we have to adapt to this changing world. That means adjust. Absolutely, and so that may mean. Uh, what is, uh, how do we adapt to changing precipitation patterns? How do we change? Big one that we're seeing um, with very dramatic consequences are extreme heat events or just it not cooling down as much at night or having more um, high temperature um, 
high temperature days that are allowing us to calculate, for example, lost economic productivity because temperatures are so high that you can't engage in your economic activity that would, would, would generate income. And so um, and what are the health impacts of those poor air quality days due to increased uh, forest fire activities, right? So in that sense, there, um, again, through all geographies and all sectors of life, there are impacts that require us to adapt. Historically, and still today, there's a, been a tension, a perceived tension between, well, if you talk too much about adaptation, you may reduce the, um, the, the priority on addressing root causes. And so if you leave a kind of a, what some perceive as a false notion is we'll just, um, we'll just adapt to a warmer world. Um, so don't worry about actually changing how you move around and how you generate energy. Um, so adaption would go against mitigation is it, what you're saying. Or at least in, 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 perceived in to, yeah, perceived to lower its priority, right? Because, right. because okay. these, these are big changes. They're, they're changes that cost money. Although I think there's, um, there are a lot of things that we could do that, um, don't cost money, and I think at the at the heart of it, it's about changing how we define the good life so that it's not uh, inexplicably or explicably tied to um, to the more you consume, the happier you are, and the better you are. Right, and so we want to be right. rich in experience, not necessarily things. Um, and so, to to conclude with your third term, there resilience really kind of brings that um, into an approach that in some ways borrows from the natural world, right? Resilience is, is um, being able to take a perturbation or a hit or an extra, something that kind of changes your condition and come back to stasis. Well, this is even more than coming back to some sort of a normal and saying we need to be, we need to think of um, these this uncertainty, these greater big changes in temperature and um, precipitation as, um, as what's going to happen. And we need to therefore be more flexible and build systems that can take those extremes that we used to say, oh, that'll only happen one in a thousand years or one in 10,000 years. So kind of essentially meaningless in a human lifetime. But instead, say no. This is going to happen more and more often, and we need to we need to set up our our infrastructure, but also our our kind of social systems that allow us to to be more resilient in the face of this um, this warmer world. The report, uh, the assessment, also uh, had a, a chart in it that I found just. Uh, shocking put things in perspective for me so although it's it's very hopeful and in sort of a how-to of adjusted this some of these things were were just outrageous uh present day levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere higher than at any time in the last eight hundred thousand years rate of sea level rise in the 20th century uh, faster than in any century in the last 3,000 years. Global temperatures increased in the past 50 years 
more than they did in the past 2000 and and so on uh, the the drought in western united states more severe than the last 1200 years the, these are shocking statements these are shocking facts i shouldn't say statements they're shocking facts um the, the report doesn't shy away from those. No, I, you know, it's, that's the, the, that's what the data show. That's what the analysis shows. And so there's kind of, um, that's the nature of science, right? And these are the, these are the findings and we have better those are the be- facts, right? We have better and better uh, means to understand, to look back as well as to look forward. I think it does pose real challenges for our typical decision-making process because we're used to incremental change and the, the, and we, what seem like, um, small, um, small changes in terms of say this kind of, for example, global average temperature change, it seems, well, I'll just turn the heat up or turn the air conditioning down. Well, first of all, literally hundreds of millions of people don't have indoor heating or indoor cooling. And so that's not a luxury afforded to everyone. And then second, um, those changes, while they appear to be small, are actually massive in terms of what they can mean for an ecosystem. So for example, um, the changes in um, uh, ocean temperature, what that means for um, fish, the fish that we uh, so many depend on for income and for source of food, uh, those changes can be dramatic in terms of which species are present and their reproductive cycles and such. And so small change can be very disruptive to our food systems or um or while the average may change very little, still those extreme heat events can have dramatic impacts with direct um, loss of life because communities are not used to dealing with such high temperatures. And so um, in that way, I think it is both remarkable in terms of how um, unusual, unprecedented um, the those kind of statistics are for how long, um, how, how different <laughs> our activities have made this world. And yet um, it really is a challenge to uh, us understanding just how dramatic that is uh, because sometimes it seems like um, just a, a marginal change when in fact it's a huge change. And, and again, your point is no part of the United States, and we're focusing on that right now, no part of the United States is immune from the impacts of climate change. That's right. I think it's important to think of that as the direct impacts, like what does it mean for temperature and precipitation in your particular area, but also remember, and this was made clear with the international chapter as well, that what is happening far, far away still has very direct impacts. It could have impact on health. It could have impact on food and it could have impact on um, the kind of uh, economic dimensions. And so the impacts don't have, you don't have to be on a coast that's inundated by extreme weather events to have dramatic impacts felt um, in, in some remote area. The Canadian forest fires made that very clear in terms of the 
poor air quality days throughout the Midwest and Northeast in the United States. Um, but it also uh, um, uh, is even farther afield with, with dynamics overseas. And so that is, um, again, hard to conceptualize. Uh, folks want to look out the, the, the back window and see whether the um, there's change in how much snow we get and when we get it and such or rainfall. Uh, and that matters, uh, but it also matters what's happening in far, far away as well. Uh, you came up with a phrase that you shared with me, which I love, and you said, "What what happens overseas doesn't stay overseas," right. and that seems to sum up what you're just saying. What happens in Nepal or some other part of the world? can impact what goes on in Indianapolis, Indiana, or St. Louis, Missouri. Sure. No, and I, and I think that's in multiple realms, right? We've talked a little bit about health. We've talked a little bit about agriculture. Um, one of the sections of the international chapter looks at security impacts. And so as, as climate change is having direct and indirect impacts on uh, the economics and political and even stability and security situations in countries that are um, uh, are overseas that might be important as allies, might be important as areas where there's already um, uh, challenges around uh, conflict and political instability, certainly um, poverty, that those are dynamics that given the role that the U.S. has in, in foreign policy and security policy, those have implications for, um, for the security and well-being of the populations in those countries, but also us. It manifests itself in terms of um, um, the, the uh, quite, in many ways, rational response of moving, right? The kind of the migration dynamics. Most of the migration is within countries. Most of it is 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 temporary, but some of it is across borders. Some of it is is more uh, long term, um, and you know the migration question is one that very quickly gets politicized. Um, and on the one hand, it is uh, which I think is a real disservice. Um, I, I, on the one hand, it is is a quite effective um, response. Uh, that we have literally practiced for millennia, which is um, uh, is to move as part of uh, our changing ways of livelihoods and such. Uh, but at the same time, it is one that is can be quite political. Um, and and so I, I also mentioned the kind of critical just inputs to these technologies that we want and need to develop around renewable energy technologies. Well, the inputs come from overseas. And so we have to um, understand that supply chain issues are uh, incredibly important for whether we can make these transitions that we want to make. Let me, let me go back to the national security issue a, a, a moment, and you talk, uh, or the report talks about, I'm sorry, uh, climate change can contribute to political and social instability. I think people understand that. But in some instances, actually, that is advanced to conflict. Can you give us an example of what that means? Yeah, well, it's it's certainly uh, it, it's certainly a, 
this is where there's lots of connections and they um, are difficult to, to parse apart and pull apart. But I think the, the, the notion here is that the, the stresses that are, uh, can undergird competition for resources in, that become increasingly scarce, that in some instances that can factor into lines of tension and conflict in ways that make it more difficult to resolve them. Or, or, and make that competition uh, more extreme. So often it can be, um, well, not often, it is always part of a larger set of, of variables. I mean, uh, conflict is a really complex set of dynamics, um, but we're increasingly seeing the, the challenge of um, the, the, these issues are, uh, um, I don't. It's not used in this report, but folks in this in this area talk about it as a, a threat multiplier in terms of um, ramping up and increasing the pressures that are associated with contributing to violence. And so that's one where there's still lots of uh, debate, um, but one where we see lots of um, examples of these dynamics of undercutting the economic productivity, the ability to earn livelihoods, and the, um, the, the, the frustrations and grievances and tensions that surround it playing into questions of, of stability. Just, just to break this down, and uh, I know this is oversimplified, so, so forgive me, okay? So um, let's say a country suffers severe droughts, extreme heat, uh, their food supply that uh, they generate, uh, that the country generates on its own, uh, is grossly diminished. Um, economic system won't provide help to the country. A country may very well look to expand its borders or expand its territory in order to obtain additional resources. Is that correct? Yeah, you're right. It is, it is complex. And in part, this is one of the challenges that it's, it's often not the um, kind of the absolute scarcity or the kind of the worst drought, right? We have a lot of places that are, have those extremes that don't experience violence, but it's often uh, the kind of how quickly those changes come. And so we don't have time to learn how to adapt in, in, in those kind of extreme circumstances. It's also, there are, I should say, ways to uh, adapt to that. So for example, one of the ways historically is that when you don't have water and you have difficulty with agriculture, then you go onto the international food markets and trade in food, and that's how you make it up. Well, you know, this is another case of how this, these things are connected, whether they're climate related or not. Um, the war in Ukraine has taken lots of grain off the international market, leading to um, uh, real food insecurity in other parts of the world where that grain would have been uh, in the past exported to. Well, that's challenging. But then you throw in um, a, a extremely dry season for export for agriculture in some of those receiving countries. Uh, South Asia um, had a, a particularly poor set of harvests, um, which do have kind of climate dimensions to it. And so that 
climate change affecting agriculture in one place, war affecting the lack of exports in another, suddenly you have um, real food insecurity and hunger issues in yet other parts of the world, Middle East and, 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 and Sub-Saharan Africa that are used to being able to import those foods. And so in that sense, it, it shows how these things are connected. It shows that it can be connected to conflict in a variety of ways, and it's important to not just focus on how uh, climate impacts might directly factor into conflict, that there are other ways that conflict disconnected from climate can be quite impactful when combined with um, um, this climate going on, because these things are all going on together <laughs> um, and not in, in, in separation and isolation. I think th this whole issue of climate change and the impacts globally, uh, as well as within our country, sometimes are, are so complex that people look for uh, maybe simple sentences. And I found a sentence in the, the part that you were an author of, uh, the international part, that said, climate change undermines the world's ability to develop sustainability, reverses developmental gains, and exacerbates inequities. Uh, is, is that a good summarizing sentence? I think it is. I think it is um, one that really emphasizes how those who would focus on the different dimensions of sustainability and sustainable development, right? Meeting food needs, meeting energy needs, meeting um, um, a, a variety of kind of basic development indicators that those are made more difficult, already difficult challenges made more difficult because climate change is, is impacting those economies, the, those uh, agricultural sectors, those health indicators and the burdens of, of, uh, of, of disease in ways that uh, are just making that um, already challenging effort of uh, addressing poverty uh, uh, all that more difficult. And so it's, again, on the one hand, a simple statement to say climate change is related to all these priorities. It's harder to then act on it. Um, and it is tempting to uh, say, well, I do agriculture. I'm not going to worry about climate change. But the, the, I do water infrastructure. I'm not going to worry about climate change. Or I do economic development. I'm not going to worry about climate change. But it's, it's just not um, a, a luxury of staying in our lane uh, um, because uh, these issues just cross all these sectors and all these geographies. We have talked about um, many of the problems and uh, the political decision-making and policy-making challenges uh, that the report outlines. But I, I want to spend a few minutes talking about the opportunities uh, the report, and even in the international section, talk about opportunities for U.S. economics, trade, and investment. Uh, talk about the opportunities available and how that meshes with the, the problems that we are facing. Well, I, I think it is um, it is uh, dramatically underappreciated how the 
uh, economic goals of having a strong and vibrant uh, economy with jobs that um, allow people to uh, have full lives is uh, compatible with the transitions that we need to make uh, to address climate change. In the mitigation area, we have um, uh, dramatic increases in the development and deployment of uh, renewable energy in ways that are um, allowing some parts of our economy to be leaders and leaders in technology and leaders in deployment, leaders in the kind of the the systems that um, pull these different dimensions together. Um, and that is a real opportunity for economic growth and innovation and um that is both important to deploy, but also uh, creates markets and creates opportunity um, where our um, our strong education um, uh, uh, sector can feed directly into the innovation of the of private sector and public private partnerships. Um, these are these are opportunities that, um, sadly, other parts of the world have been quicker to to. Uh, focus on and invest in and subsidize um, than the United States has. Uh, this current administration has certainly made it a big focus with the infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act has provided uh, significant resources for that um, uh, kind of investment approach um, for in in seeing in seeing making these transitions as part of uh, economic development uh, and jobs program. And so um, that is an area of opportunity that um, parts of the United States, uh, particularly the private sector and so parts of the private sector have recognized and the public sector, uh, I hope is will continue to, to catch up and, and make the, the investments that are, are possible. Let's talk specifically for a few minutes about China. You and I talked, uh, oh, maybe a year or more ago. And when we talked then, you mentioned how China was advancing its technologies and its footprint in places such as Africa and in working with the, the economies there, uh, but it, also in the climate change uh, space, they were working uh, th that uh, area as well. Uh, is that still the case? And do we, as the United States, see China as a competitor here or a partner here? Um, I, I so the answer is yes. China is still doing an awful lot in terms of uh, recognizing that uh, climate change has very real impacts uh, on China, and that that is um, a priority then for developing a range of um, renewable and alternative energy technologies. At the same time, it is still building coal-fired power plants and and investing in. Um, uh, fossil fuel sources of energy as well. So it is not that it is entirely consistent moving from one to the other. Um, there are such large energy needs that the approach is one that while agreeing to um, uh, reduce its carbon footprint, it still um, 
generating uh, uh, the large, still the largest emitter. I think what is different in China is that the, it is in a much uh, more challenging economic uh, condition. The the domestic economy is, um, and some of that's connected to COVID, and some of it's connected to um, economic um, incentives and, and and challenges there. I would say they're still very active in the. Um, uh, with the Belt and Road Initiative and the kind of foreign policy uh, signing agreements, often around natural resource extraction and sourcing from different parts of the world, that's in um, natural resources, that's in food, um, and and so in that sense, China is very much a competitor in the foreign policy realm, very much a competitor in the economic realm. There are attempts uh, to continue to find ways to partner on the climate uh, on the climate side. Although I would say, even there, um, one could see competition for leadership within the international community around climate, particularly during um, the uh, previous administration when we pulled out, for example, of the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, China was very um, happy to try to move into space that the U.S. had occupied in a leadership role in prioritizing climate change when the U.S. was stepping back. And so um, I think you can find examples of, uh, of some cooperation, primarily now competition. Um, and that, of course, is a big challenge because the, on, the, on, on climate change, it really does require actions from all countries. Uh, first and foremost, the two largest emitters, the China and the United States, to take action that one would hope was be uh, coordinated and, and not uh, strictly in competition. We've talked about competition, but let's also uh, talk about dependence. And uh, let's specifically zero in on electric vehicles or electrical vehicles uh, that this country is trying to produce. How dependent are we on uh, China to be able to produce those? Yeah. So uh, currently we are um – we're heavily dependent on overseas sources of minerals and metals. And, and we have um, we have a figure that is a new figure with the most up-to-date data uh, at the time we put it together. Uh, of course, we've been working on this report for two years, and there's increased attention to these issues. So you can find some good sources. Um, but it is... Um, uh, a, a, it, it is... It is definitely... China, but it is really all parts of the world. We have um, we have uh, dependence on imports from Canada, and Mexico, some from Europe, heavily from Asia, a little bit um, uh, from Africa, but also South America and the Caribbean. So, um, and it depends by which technology type, whether it's solar or wind or the batteries for for EVs and vehicles. I think um, part of what is um, is a good example why investment and innovation and priority in this space um, can be critical is that the way that we power our electric vehicles today um, doesn't have to be the way we do it tomorrow, right? So a lot of the drive for innovation in the batteries is how to generate the same power with fewer inputs. And so I think part of what's going to start to happen, has started to happen, is that looking at, well, 
how do we reduce the amount of inputs for minerals and metals that we're dependent on from overseas? How do we do that in a way that um, lowers the cost? How do we do that? And that can be just incremental, but it can also be transformative with just entirely different technologies. And so uh, it's one that I hope will um, um, raise the priority for innovation as well as at the same time understanding that uh, it's one more way that we're connected to the world. I think when we look at climate change from the average person's perspective, everybody's looking for the silver bullet or the, the magic solution. One or two or perhaps even three things that will make it all better, make it all go away. I, I know you have talked with me privately about, you know, there, there, this is an... It's based on exact science, but the solutions are not exact science. And there are winners and losers in the process, and we have to be patient with that. Is, is that a correct analysis of what you've said? I think it's, yeah, and I would say it's more than being patient. I think it is to recognize that the, the scale of change and the rate of change that's required to effectively respond to climate impacts and and adapt and, and be resilient in the face of those changes means that um, those changes can will be um, disruptive and can advantage some and disadvantage others. So in that sense, winners and losers. And so what it requires is that we we take that on up front rather than wait until there's a problem. So it is, we know that um, mining and processing of things that are mined can be highly disruptive from an economic, from a health and from a social perspective where they're being mined, whether that's in the Democratic Republic of the Congo or whether that's in the American West on public lands or, um, native tribal lands, and that those have real justice dimensions and even conflict dimensions that we have to um, um, take into account as we make these transitions and prioritize um, these changes. And so there's a, a sense that we need to have a just and peaceful transition as well as a transition uh, away from um, um, the 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 economies and the energy sources that create this problem contribute to climate change. Um, and so in that sense, it is one that as we adapt, we don't want to do that in a way that just locks in existing inequalities, but we want that to be done in a way that really addresses everyone's vulnerability and addresses some of those injustice issues from the outset. And so I think that, for example, is why it is is uh, new and critically important that this uh, national climate assessment has such a strong emphasis on, on, on justice uh, and, and inequality issues, um, both in terms of how climate impacts it, but also in terms of how we respond to climate. The report uh, is not all negative. It, it acknowledges that we've made some progress since the last report in 2018, but it is abundantly clear that we have not made changes quickly enough. Um, 
um, unfortunately, we have to wrap up our conversation, but I'd like for you to respond to that. Uh, and I'm going to give you your last words that are, are not <laughs> dictated by a question. What, what, what would you want us to come away with, with this report and what's being done? I, I think that the takeaway is that um, climate change is here and it's now and it is um, in all parts of the country and all parts of the world that we um, – uh, while science is an ever-evolving process of understanding, we do have a very good understanding of what is causing the, these changes and what the impacts are and are likely to be, uh, that there are absolutely ways to um, mitigate this problem, adapt to this problem, and build resilience, that the biggest challenges are in the political, social, and economic realms rather than the scientific realms, and that it it behooves us to, ad to adopt a cooperative rather than a competitive approach, that the United States publicly and privately is taking action, but that action is for our own purposes and for the larger world's purposes, because our actions impact everyone, um, are, are not yet sufficient to the challenge. And that, um, that the uh, biggest uh, challenges in that political realm and allocating resources and giving priority continues to be the, the, um, the arena where we need to do the most work. Um, it, and in that respect, it is, uh, something that all, uh, can and should be contributing to, um, uh, at an individual household, um, and community level. And at the same time, um, need to make sure that we expect our our leadership at all levels to take these issues on to address threats and capture opportunities. Jeff, as always, thank you so much for providing us with your expertise. I'm hoping that uh, you will link us up with some of your colleagues as we go forward and look more in depth in certain parts of this climate assessment. It is really a rich, rich resource, and uh, we've only scratched the surface. Absolutely, Thomas. My pleasure, and I appreciate you giving this important issue the attention uh, that it deserves. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Jeffrey DeBelco about the new National Climate Assessment, what it means, and where do we go from here. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcast or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. 
That's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everyone.